Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for joining me here on ADH TV. I'll tell you every night, tell your friends and family how they can watch this new streaming service. Search ADH on the Apple TV App Store or Google Play Store to download to your television or iPhone or iPad. And you can listen to the show in full on the podcast. Search Alan Jones in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Plenty of great feedback from people all over the country. Thank you for that. The public are fed up, and as one viewer said to me last week, ADH-TV for them is the last line of defence when it comes to common sense viewpoints in this country. We say it how it is and talk about the issues which matter to you. I'll have something to say in a minute about the floods, where they are and what it means. Hopefully we can shut up the climate change alarmists. Floods visiting trauma, death and damage to Australians have been with us for 150 years. Plenty of nonsense also being talked about the Liberal Party. What does it have to do to win 18 seats at the next federal election? I'll have something to say about that. And tonight on the show, the Queensland opposition leader, David Christofulli, will join me. You heard him here a few weeks ago. He was outstanding. He has breathed new life into the Queensland Liberal National Party. What was once a rump of a political party is now a serious contender to win government at the next Queensland state election, not due, of course, till 2024. Yesterday, a very positive poll, courtesy of Brisbane's Courier-Mail newspaper, showing Christopher Lee has a higher net satisfaction rating than Anastasia Palaszczuk. There is no doubt that in the past few weeks, the Queensland Premier has lost a lot of bark. I know Anastasia Palaszczuk, and I don't doubt her commitment to Queensland. She's made some good calls in the past, but recently, it's the people around her, her ministers and advisers, who've been subpar. You've heard me before talk about the former Treasurer and Deputy Leader Jackie Trad and the controversy surrounding her hiring of the former Labor Treasurer, that is, top under-Treasurer, that is, the top public servant, Frankie Carroll. Well, Jackie Trad took the matter to the Supreme Court, legal action, to block the release of the Crime and Corruption Commission report, taxpayers' money. The public are entitled to know what all this cost. But a few weeks back, rather than be seen to vote against releasing the costs, a group of Labor MPs didn't turn up. These MPs are committee members. They paid an extra $25,000 on top of generous salaries to do just that, turn up and vote. They didn't. So the trad costs will remain a secret to the public. Taxpayers' money. And this stuff is dogging Anastasia Palaszczuk big time. I'll speak later, as I said to David Christofulli. We'll also cross to Washington, D.C. for the latest with Peggy Grandy. I know you'd love to hear from her. There is plenty happening in America. And you can always have your say by just emailing me, Jones at adh.tv. Jones at adh.tv. Well, as I mentioned just earlier, I'm sure that all Australians share the sense of despair confronting so many flood victims in New South Wales. They are described as floods, but many people who've been around a long time say they've never seen torrential rain like it. Sensibly, the federal government has declared the New South Wales floods a natural disaster. And I'm sure Australians, wherever they are, though they can't do much, are very much with the flood victims in spirit. The areas in question are metropolitan Sydney itself, the Hawkesbury, the Central Coast and the Illawarra. 
50,000 people have been affected by evacuation orders. And as I speak to you, the rain continues to bucket down. The SES received more than 5,300 requests for assistance in the last 48 hours. And only last night alone, the State Emergency Service carried out 22 flood rescues. The Bureau of Meteorology has said that some areas have received up to 800 millimetres of rain over four days. In the old lingo, that's 32 inches, almost a metre of rain. The focus tonight is on the Central Coast and Lake Macquarie, through to Sestock, up to the Newcastle area and the northern parts of the Hunter Valley. And more heavy rain is likely tomorrow on the mid-north coast up to Coffs Harbour. Rising floodwaters and storm damage have obviously caused significant power outages. 19,000 homes and businesses affected around Greater Sydney. I spoke to Janelle Saffin last night about the predicament in Lismore. She's the state Labor MP. They're still recovering from February floods where people are still struggling to build a future, sleeping in rooms with no roof or sleeping in tents. Applications for financial assistance rejected because the applicant doesn't have appropriate documentation. Dumbbell bureaucrats unable to comprehend that victims lost everything in the floods, which includes proper documentation. There is a $500 million flood assistance package, but fewer than 20% of applicants for rental support have been paid out. And the Executive Director of Service New South Wales, Catherine Ellis, told the flood inquiry into Lismore that applicants were given 28 days to provide documentation. Now, if you had half a brain, you'd know the documentation doesn't exist. Walt Secord, the flood inquiry chairman, put to this Catherine Ellis from Service New South Wales, and I quote, I put it to you that flood support and support from this government, that's the New South Wales government, is a cruel hoax and you have no intention of providing support, unquote. Taxpayers want everything done to help struggling victims of flood and they ask how it is possible that a grant system is designed where 64% of people who apply for a grant aren't eligible because they can't provide the paperwork. It was washed away in the floods. All this is being revisited now with the torrential rain of the last four days. Some of the people in the northwest of Sydney have been through six floods, the last three of which this year. Thousands and thousands of residents remain out of their homes, unlikely to return, if they're lucky, until later this week. And what they will see of the damage that has been done is unimaginable. Put it all together, torrential rain, overflowing rivers, coastal erosion, damaging winds, hazardous surf conditions, and it's danger with a capital D. Then there's the cleanup. It is hard to get your head around the realities. I was reading about the beautiful and historic Camden, 65 kilometres from the Sydney CBD. Immigrant families settled there under Governor Burke's 1835 plan. Governor King granted land in Camden to John MacArthur, and so began the thriving Australian wool industry. There's history everywhere. The Camden Post Office opened on the 1st of May, 1841. Imagine this. Tennis Camden's head coach, Laurie Geist, has been flooded four times, all of them this year. He's had no electricity since April. And yesterday, his tennis courts were a metre and a half underwater. You just soldier on, he said, but you wonder how. People not affected by the floods will be affected in the supermarkets. 
The floods have simply destroyed crops and placed further strain on supply chains. IGA New South Wales are saying there'll be retail price increases of as much as 200% on the prices of a year ago. And those prices will now remain for longer after the last bout of rain. We've all heard the stories about iceberg lettuce soaring above $10, silver beet $9.50, kale $7 a bunch, bok choy $5, lettuce $6. All Australians are going to feel the impact of this as our agricultural supplies are decimated. One point I should make, the climate change alarmists will be claiming justification for their determination to blame everything on climate change, except dangerous floods have occurred in every Australian state over the last 150 years. From Gundagai in New South Wales in 1852, which saw 89 deaths and the entire settlement of 250 people destroyed. To Melbourne in 1934, November 29, 36 deaths, 6,000 homeless and over 400 buildings damaged. 18 people drowned, a further 18 killed by collapsing buildings. In the Hunter Valley in 1955, around Singleton and Maitland, there were 24 deaths, 59 homes destroyed, 40,000 people evacuated from a total of 40 towns. Is it too much, too much to ask the climate change alarmist to shut up for a while? Australia has seen these weather events for the last 150 years. Any such event brings with it tragedy. But what we are experiencing occurred in Australia long before the climate change addicts took to their exaggerated rhetoric. Look, in the world of Australian politics, we're often found shaking our heads, but what on earth is going on in Queensland? The Brisbane Courier-Mail this week published a YouGov poll which shows that the integrity scandals in Queensland have seen the Labor Party's support plunge to its lowest level in three years. The poll was of more than 1,000 people, which reveals that months of questioning about integrity within the Palaszczuk government has smashed its standing amongst voters. The poll indicated that if an election were held this week, more Queenslanders would vote for David Christofoli's LNP, 38%, than for Labor, 34%. But disturbingly, the vote for the Greens is up to 14%. I just wonder, have any of these people read the Greens policies on taxation and revenue, for example? One of them is any fine that you get, listen to this, would be based on a percentage of an individual's gross income. Work that out. And of course, with $77 billion coming into Queensland's coffers from the resource industry, the Greens will attack resources from every angle. Nonetheless, the two-party preferred vote is locked 50-50. Is the electoral honeymoon for Anastasia Palaszczuk over. She won the 2020 election with a two-party preferred vote of 53-47. It's now 50-50. Interestingly, Pauline Hanson's One Nation on this poll is at 10%. The further interesting point about the poll is that while Labor's primary vote is six points below what it recorded on election day in October 2020, those six percentage points haven't shifted to the coalition. They were 35.9% at the last election, on this poll, 38, so they're up two. The rest of it, though, seems to have gone to the Greens. Remembering that at the recent federal election, the Greens won the inner city seat of Griffith, once held by Kevin Rudd, unseating a very good Labor candidate, Terry Butler. They won the inner city seat of Brisbane and the former Blue Ribbon Liberal seat of Ryan. Many of Anastasia Palaszczuk's own MPs are saying she's checked out as Premier. 
If she were to serve a full term and run in 2024, she would overtake Peter Beattie's nine years in power to become Queensland's longest serving post-war Labor Premier. Well, the man who has taken the coalition in a short space of time to a two-party preferred vote of 50-50, David Christofili joins me. David, thank you again for your time. Look, those south of the border are wondering what the hell is going on in Queensland. Can you tell us? We wonder the same thing, Alan. And at the moment, the reason why people are losing faith with the state government is, quite frankly, they've stopped listening. Now, you mentioned in your introduction about the, her own MPs have said she's checked out. What Queenslanders are saying to me is it's all about the glitz and the glamour and the red carpet, and it's not about substance anymore. And if you look at our ambulance ramping at 42%, that's the worst in the nation. If you look at the repeat cycle of juvenile crime where the same offenders do the same thing, get a slap on the wrist back out there, you look at our NAPLAN results in education, if you look across the board at the delays in delivering infrastructure, you realise that Queenslanders deserve a lot better and uh, we, we're going to put that case to them because Queensland needs change. David, we had this scandal in relation to DNA testing failures, a failure which could well mean that individuals could have been prosecuted if the DNA testing was up to scratch. So there may be criminals out there who are found not guilty because their DNA didn't meet some testing threshold. Equally, I guess, there may be people found guilty who with a proper DNA test may have been found innocent. Now, Queensland have a double jeopardy provision. So a person charged with a serious criminal offence who is acquitted by a jury can be charged a second time if new evidence emerges that was not available to prosecutors at that time. David Christofoli, does this mean that a stack of cases could be reopened? Yes, it does. And Alan, I'm so glad you've raised this because I just can't stress how significant this is. We have situations where DNA has been unable to be detected from the blood of a victim. We have situations where DNA has been unable to be detected in a vehicle that was driven by someone for 20 years and it couldn't even find that person's DNA. Now, the tests are broken and we were consistently asking questions in the parliament. It started with a, just a blase, oh, you're knocking our hardworking staff. It's never about that. It was whistleblowers coming to us. We then eventually got them to admit that something was wrong and they looked at an internal review. Then they escalated it and said it'd be an external review. We now have a Royal Commission into this. And I can tell you, Alan, the things that it is going to find, mm -hmm. to go to your point, mm -hmm. you bet there will be people who have been denied justice. And I am serious about this. This is a broken system and we owe it to every victim, every single victim to fix this and hold those accountable. Well, well, it is. I mean, the forensic biologist, Dr. Kirsty Wright, who ran the National Criminal Investigation DNA database, has called what's been going on, quote, the biggest forensic disaster. There is nothing anywhere in the world that is like this, she said. And in terms of the scale, how many years have these issues gone on for? So you're saying there's going to be a royal commission. When will there be a conclusion to that? We will continue to keep the government's feet to the fire. Now, they've dragged their heels to, the, to date, but you mentioned Dr Wright. She's a hero. She has stood up and she's been counted for. Now, I'll just tell you how serious this is, Alan. Mark my words, there are murders and rapists who are walking free who should be behind bars. There are people who have been denied justice because of a broken system. When things have been challenged, results that 
should never have been allowed to get to second base in not being tested. All of a sudden, they've found DNA. There is something dodgy yes, in the forensic is. services lab, and unfortunately, it's caught Queenslanders justice, and we owe it to every single one of them to fix it, not just for them, but for your kids in the future, for your kids who might need this protection one day. It's broken. It's dodgy. It's symptomatic of everything that is wrong with this government, where it's all about how things look. Always look to suppress things rather than be open and accountable. And I tell you, this one is a steamer. Well, what about the Integrity Commissioner, Nicola Stepanoff? She has resigned. She was cracking down on Queensland's lobbyist sector, including a widespread failure to declare meetings or the names of those who attended meetings with ministers and government officials. Is anyone investigating why she resigned? Because an audit of the lobbyist's register for the 2021 financial year alone found more than 100 breaches. Lobbyists were put on notice. And one of the main offenders, according to Dr Stefanoff, was an unnamed former political advisor. Now, obviously, get rid of her and perhaps all this will disappear. Where are we in relation to her resignation? Alan, she has agreed to stay on for estimates to answer questions and the government refused. Today, we reveal that over $217,000 has been donated from an actor, that is the firm that is owned by Evan Moorhead, a one-time MP, a one-time Labor State Secretary. Over $217,000 has been donated back to the Labor Party. Now, we called that out today. The Premier, under pressure after getting a review, said, OK, my government's not going to deal with Mr Moorhead anymore. Well, Mr Moorhead's moved to Canberra. He sees greener pastures. He's mm. moved to Canberra because he sees a fresh opportunity. But his minions are still left behind here in Queensland. Yes, they take... have unfavourable access. Yes. It is wrong. It's I mean, the cold, rake, the cold rake review said four years that anyone who has been involved in any kind of association with the election of a government should be banned from lobbying for four years. She has now said, oh, uh, Moorhead and Milner have gone for two. But, I mean, what difference does that make? An actor, the company can still negotiate and lobby the government. They're not, they're not the only two employees, so nothing's changed. Yep, you know it, I know it. Uh, Mr Moorhead will go to, to Canberra and do his business and right here, things will continue. And I'll tell you how dodgy it is, Alan. The government has engaged an actor to get a minister to talk to a chair of a government-owned corporation. Now, you can't make that stuff up. If a minister isn't capable of speaking to a chairman who he or she has appointed, there is something seriously wrong. They are getting an actor and paying them good money to teach them how to negotiate. Lo and behold, what then happens? An actor donates back to the Labor Party over $217,000. That makes them one of the biggest donors to the Labor Party. The situation is untenable. If the Premier had any ounce of credibility, she would say, OK, we've heard the Coldrake report. We believe in commercial incompetence and we're going to say what the well camp costs are because that makes absolutely no sense to keep that private. We're going to fix estimates because this nonsense about ministers running protection rackets has got to change. We're going to fix the committee system. We're going to make sure that every single time that any dealing with any lobbyist named an actor is pulled the plug on, we finish, no more. If she did that, you know that she would believe in it, but we've got assistant ministers running around bullying whistleblowers. We've got ministers trying to cover up. The situation is out of control and nothing well, will change uh, until the uh, government changes. Yes, it's a very, just keeping this very simple, during the election campaign, these two people with an actor, Moorhead and Milner, were running 
the election campaign for the Labor Party. At the same time, I understand there are about 57 representations from their lobbying firm, Anacta, to ministers and other people in the course of the election campaign. And many of those lobbying representations were rewarded with contracts after the election. Now, goodness me, I mean, is this allowable? Is this legal? What the hell is going to happen to all of that? And uh, one other factor in that, they operated out of a taxpayer-funded building. So a building that your viewers pay for, Queensland taxpayers' money, they operated out of there and were running strategy for the Labor Party during a campaign. And now Mr Moorhead wants his pound of flesh and he's getting it. And unfortunately, Queenslanders are worse off because of it. Do you think Anastasia Palaszczuk's had a wink, wink, nod, nod with Milner and Moorhead? Because those lobbyists now, and this bloke Nelson, won't be working with the government, but the company will. So that doesn't make any difference. It hasn't affected the company, Anacta, because, as I said, you said, I think immediately after the uh, Albanese federal election win, Anacta set up shop in Canberra, registering as a lobby firm, and the former chief of staff to the Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles quit her job to join Anacta in Canberra as a director of the firm. And Anacta reportedly have several federal clients including the miner Glencore Australia, the renewables company Bowen River Utilities, the infrastructure investment business Plenary Group and the global beverage giant Lion Nathan. David, we're running out of time, but is this healthy? Your viewers will remember Mr Albanese said that he wanted to run a government like Premier Palaszczuk's. Well, Australia, you got your wish. It's coming. Live to you. You'll see it up close and personal. It's a, it's a dire situation. All right. Keep at it. We'll talk to you again soon. Keep at it. It's very, very important for the people of Queensland. And Anastasia Palaszczuk, come on. You're better than this. Clean the joint out. David Christofulli, thank you for your time. God bless you, Alan, and thank you for your time. Not at all. Here is the Queensland Opposition Leader, David Christofulli. Just before we go any further, the media continues to be preoccupied not with Wimbledon, but with Nick Kyrgios. In fact, hardly anyone else rates a mention. A bloke who spits at spectators, swears at linesmen, tells umpires they're a disgrace, always, it seems, on the lookout for an enemy and someone to fight with. But we're told he packs the stadiums, increases the ratings. In short, he is box office. Yesterday, when the two other young Australians, De Minor and Kubler, were beaten, Kyrgios prevailed in five sets against a mild-mannered 20-year-old American, 6-2 in the fifth. So Kyrgios is down to the last eight at Wimbledon, magnificent achievement, to play the Chilean Christian Garin, who beat Alex de Menor after de Menor led two sets to love. But will Kyrgios make it onto the court for his next match? He behaved himself yesterday on centre court and then ran foul again of Wimbledon officials. The clothing and apparel rules for players, including practice, require the attire at Wimbledon to be, quote, almost entirely white. And that applies, quote, from the point at which the player enters the court surround, unquote. Now, these rules have applied since the tournament began in 1877. Kyrgios's playing attire adhered to the rules during the course of the match. But he switched to red and white Air Jordan sneakers and a red Jordan brand cap when entering the court and after the match. It said the tournament officials will be speaking to Kyrgios to ask why he was breaking the rules. Now, I'm not the only one who's formed the impression that the Wimbledon officials have had enough. 
He admits that he has a massive chip on his shoulder, but his break with officialdom has meant that in his career, he's been fined almost $800,000. For other reasons, this is a story. He prepared for Wimbledon on basketball courts in Sydney. He's without a coach. He can do anything with a tennis ball. No one is asking him to be something that he isn't. But courtesy and respect must go hand in hand with sporting talent. Otherwise, the individual and the talent are diminished. It'll be interesting to see whether Wimbledon is prepared to enforce its own standards. Now to another matter. The 2021 census has indicated that while Christianity is still Australia's most common religion, adherence has decreased by more than a million. The census also indicated that while Australia was becoming more religiously diverse, almost 10 million Australians reported having no religion. The latest government census shows the number of people identifying as Anglican in Greater Sydney has fallen by 2.8 percentage points over the past five years from 12% to 9.2%. The national fall was slightly greater, dropping by 3.5% to 9.8%. Fewer are identifying as Catholic, but the drop has been smaller. Now, Andrew Semple, the Anglican rector of the historic St. James Church in King Street in Sydney CBD, has said churches must engage with criticism of institutional religion as being divisive, self-centered, and more interested in judgment than grace, and that the churches must be honest about the reasons for their decline. Now, Andrew Semple seeks to identify some of those reasons. His St. James Church is out of step with the Sydney Anglican Diocese and its social conservatism. The Sydney Anglican Diocese doesn't ordain women beyond the rank of deacon, due to the view that men and women are equal, they say, equal in worth, but have different roles in life. I'm sorry, the modern churchgoer doesn't accept that. Andrew Semple argues that Sydney's conservative evangelical Anglican diocese has begun operating like a political party in which members are expected to adhere to the party line and are told that if they don't like it, they can leave. An example of that, he says, is the requirement for new principals and school council members to attest to their belief in a clause added to the church's statement of personal faith that marriage is between a man and a woman. As Andrew Semple says, quote, this is quite a dramatic move because sexuality has never featured at all in any of the creeds or statements of faith of the church in the past. He rightly argued that, quote, leadership in many quarters is saying the way we address people leaving the church is to get more control over what's happening and everything will be fine. But as Andrew Semple says, the process of trying to get more control is having the opposite effect. Church's interesting point, turning into religious versions of political parties. Would that be a factor contributing to 10 million Australians reporting they have no religion? Well, let's bring in, as we do every Tuesday, the splendidly informed former executive assistant and your lover to the American President Ronald Reagan, Peggy Grandy. Peggy, thank you again for being with us and my viewers love what you're doing. But look, it's no comfort to know that Americans seem to be in all sorts of trouble. The national average gasoline price has now topped $5 a gallon this month. And President Biden said he'd ask Gulf allies to boost oil production. Peggy, didn't Joe Biden inherit an America which was energy independent? 
Yes, Alan, and thank you for having me on. Not only did he inherit a place that was energy independent, we were actually exporting oil all around the world. And so we've gone from a place of cleanly and locally drilling our own oil and providing energy for not only us domestically, but it to the world. And Joe Biden now is not only energy dependent and not only going to our allies, but he's also going to our enemies around the world, begging them to produce more oil. We have plenty of oil here in the United States, but he refuses to allow us to drill it here. It's a bad policy mistake. People see through it. They're yeah, not yeah. buying his excuses and his blame. Yeah, well, we've got the same problem here, uh, Peggy. Heaps of coal, heaps of gas, heaps of uranium, and we don't use that. We're going madly for renewables. But the issue here about the petrol prices, they have become now the main driver of inflation. Hasn't Biden told Americans they'll have to stomach high gas prices? I read a quote from him, quote, as long as it takes to beat back Putin's invasion of Ukraine. How's this going down with American voters? Just cop it. The American people do not buy this and his hashtag of Putin's price hike. People aren't believing because the moment Joe Biden took office, gas prices started rising. And so it's his policies that have caused these problems, not Putin. And the American people are really frustrated by this. And the Band-Aid solutions that he keeps proposing aren't fixes at all. And they're frankly insulting to the American people. His, his saying that he's going to reduce the federal tax, which really takes about 18 cents a gallon off this five or six dollars a gallon of gas. And so people aren't buying this. Joe Joe Biden is the only person blaming Putin. Everybody else is blaming Joe Biden. Yeah, I noticed talk on that point. I noticed an Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs research poll released last Wednesday found 85% of Americans said the country was on the wrong track. 79% described the economy as poor and 67% of Democrats deemed economic conditions were bad. Peggy, surely the government can't go on releasing extra barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Well, that was never intended to fix bad policy. It was intended to be a rainy day emergency fund. And so releasing from that is not the solution. And the American people are not buying this. They see it for what it is. This hangs around Joe Biden's neck and he doesn't seem intent on fixing it. And in fact, he has said, this is part of our painful transition. Well, we're feeling the pain, but I'm not sure what the transition is to. Even if everybody bought an electric vehicle tomorrow, we don't have charging stations for that. And if people can't afford a $6 gallon of gas, they certainly can't afford a $60,000 electric vehicle. Brilliant. That's Brilliant. not a solution. Brilliant. Joe Biden knows we're feeling the pain. He does not have a transition plan available now. Brilliant comment. Brilliant. Back to Biden and the US Supreme Court, which have dealt him a major blow on his climate change agenda. This is not surprising, surely. The Supreme Court has restricted the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to curb power plant emissions, saying Congress would have to act to give the agency more authority. I mean, basically, Biden, the, the government is wanting to outsource uh, their policy about emissions reduction to the Environmental Protection Authority. The Supreme Court says, no, 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 they don't have that power. If you want that power, Congress are going to have the, give the government that power. What's been the reaction to this? 
Yeah, well, this was the right decision coming out of the Supreme Court, and Congress was avoiding their responsibility to make the laws. The Environmental Protection Agency is not supposed to make laws or be able to enforce them at this level. Because if you look at the EPA, what are they responsible for looking at? How to protect the environment. But they don't have to consider all the other economic factors that Congress does. And so Congress should be making the laws. The Environmental Protection Agency should be making recommendations to Congress, but this was rightly decided. And people who know the essence of it know that this was the right decision and certainly was a slap in the face to the Biden administration. They yes, got this ju wrong. Just for our viewers to clarify this, they've got one of these environmental protection agencies as we have, but the Supreme Court ruled that that agency doesn't and shouldn't have the power to shift power generation away from fossil fuel plants to cleaner sources. And Chief Justice John Roberts said, Congress needs to speak more explicitly to give an agency that much power. Is Congress gonna do this, Peggy? Well, I think we, they will talk about the problem continually, but I don't know about this Congress if they're capable of getting anything done. They like to pass the blame, wave their hands at the problem, but I don't know that they're about solutions. And mm. this was rightly decided, though, and I think it was a good decision. Yes. Uh, just to clarify that again, and it's much the same here. The EPA can regulate power plant emissions, that's for sure, but it can't order a power plant to shift power generation from fossil fuel plants. Now, the court's three Democratic appointed justices blasted the ruling. But where does this put Biden's pledge to reduce US emissions by 50 per cent by 2030? This is typical Democrat overreach. They go so far to the extreme. They're paying attention and being very punitive in areas that people are not primarily focused on. The American people are focused on inflation, on gas prices, on food prices, on the border crisis, that this is what the Biden administration is focused on. There's not one expert that says that 50% of emissions can be reduced by 2030, but they're gonna keep championing this and beating this drum, even though they know it's not possible. We can lean toward and are moving toward a cleaner and greener environment, and we should, but this is not possible. This mm -hmm. is a farce. They're, they're not serious about this, and it's not going to happen. And yeah, so and, this and was a right decision. Biden's saying, no, carbon-free by 2035. Peggy, surely Justice Roberts is right when he says that, quote, we presume that Congress, Congress intends to make major policy decisions itself, not leave those decisions to agencies. This is the problem of the government everywhere. They haven't got the courage to face the electorate. They hope someone else will do the dirty work. Uh, Justice Roberts has put an end to that, hasn't he? Yeah. Well, and you said earlier that 85% of the American people feel like America's headed in the wrong direction. I have to ask, who are the 15% that think we're headed in the right direction? Yeah. That's actually the question. <laughs> uh, isn't the, just dwelling on this, isn't the Supreme Court just saying that these decisions, as you've said, should be made by government, not by agencies? It's that simple, isn't it? Absolutely. Congress needs to step up. And that's with every decision that they have been avoiding for a long time. They've passed it off to the courts and then stomped their feet when they thought the courts didn't get it right. They're passing it off to these agencies. Congress needs to step up and do its job. Uh, Peggy, there's a general rule. And I, when I was working for a prime minister, you're working for a president, that basically domestic policy stayed domestic. Now, in Madrid, President Biden has slammed the Supreme Court of America 
bringing relations, of course, between the federal government and the nation's highest court to the lowest point. But he said, the one thing that's been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States in overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. Now, how does this go down with an American president overseas criticizing his own Supreme Court? Well, he would be all in favor of the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court was ruling in the ways that he wanted. But because the Supreme Court is looking at the Constitution and doing what they've been called to do, and he's getting heat from his party, he, of course, is going to turn around and call them out. We should all be in favor of a fair and just Supreme Court that is abiding by the Constitution as it was written. And this yeah. is a very constitutionalist court now. It's not an activist court. And so Joe Biden is not in favor of that because he's getting heat from the far left who are telling him that he's not doing enough to control this court. But he shouldn't control the court. That's why we have a division of powers and separation of government. Brilliant. Brilliant. Just on this Environmental Protection Agency, uh, which the Supreme Court have denied them the power to force power plants to cut their emissions. Can I get a comment from you on this, that the President of the United States in Madrid has said, and I quote his words, the science confirms what we all see with our own eyes. The wildfires, droughts, extreme heat and intense storms are endangering our lives and livelihoods. Peggy, there's plenty of scientific argument that disagrees with all this stuff. Well, the Biden administration is not grounded in truth and fact and science. We know that they will say anything to just make the problem hopefully go away. It's actually the opposite. We know that failed energy policies have created many of these problems. And you look no further than my own home state of California, where energy poverty has created blackouts, yes. it's created wildfires. Yep. And so it's bad energy policy. We should not be in a space, a space of energy poverty. We have the capacity to have energy Same abundance, as us. but we Same need to do us. it smartly. Same as us. Engaging nuclear power, renewables will never fully power our major Absolutely. cities, and 100%. they know it. Same as us. Same as us. Just on voting, Peggy, it is true, isn't it, that you've got to identify yourself in America when you vote, but there are different forms of identification. So what chance of success of the Missouri governor, who signed a wide-ranging elections bill, that will require voters to present government-issued photo identification to cast a ballot. Is that likely to get through? Well, we will see, and it probably will go through in Missouri, but it's interesting because the Biden administration is very much opposed to the thoughts of the American people on this. Even the African-American community overall is in favor of voter ID. You need a, you need an ID to fly on an airplane. You need an ID to buy alcohol. You need an ID to cash a check. This is something that people can't exist really in society these days without some form of identification. It doesn't need to be a driver's license. It can be a state-issued ID. ID. It can be made free and available, but anybody who wants to vote should at least take that one step and be sure that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure. That's what the American people want. They want our elections to make it easy to vote, but hard to cheat. And this will take at least one step in that direction. How amazing, isn't it? We've got exactly the same problem here. Uh, the left are opposed to ID of any kind, of any kind, when they vote. And as you say, make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. Great insights, Peggy. Always lovely to talk to you. Keep well, and we'll talk to you again next week. 
Terrific. Thank you, Alan. There she is, Peggy Grandy in America. Wonderful insights, but how extraordinary. I mean, at least in America, they do have a form of ID when you vote. This is about photo ID. We've got none here. That's a great line by Peggy, isn't it? We need ID to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. We'll be back with Peggy next week. When the Liberal Party faces the prospect of having to win 18 seats to win the next federal election, I suppose it's inevitable there'll be people from everywhere recommending what should be done. Morrison failed in his inability to differentiate his party from Labor. Running off to Glasgow on a Me Too journey was the ultimate metaphor. It's all very well to say that the Teals vote and the Albanese victory mean that climate change is not the issue, it's the only issue. Well, that ignores the fact that the Teals, whatever their votes, don't represent in the composition of their electorates or in their political positions, the majority of Australians. And Albanese's mandate comes from 32% of those who voted. The Liberal vote collapsed because Morrison gave genuine Liberal voters no reason to vote Liberal. It should be remembered that when the much maligned Tony Abbott won a landslide victory in 2013, having won in two elections 25 seats from Labor, there was a reason. Abbott was never Labor light. Abbott argued traditional Liberal political positions. As a result, his primary vote was 45.5% in 2013. Primary vote, not too party preferred. Turnbull and Morrison, lurching to the left, managed to take that primary vote on May 21 to 35.7%, a 10% slide. Let's forget the humbug about the new dominance of Labor and the Greens. They might have improved their numbers in the federal parliament, but in a voting population of 17.2 million, the Greens and Labor together increased their vote by only 337,000 or 1.7% of the voting population. The first lesson for the Liberal Party is the Australian people did not move dramatically to the left on May 21. Yet the Liberal coalition was hammered. The Liberal Party has to answer a simple question. Why has the coalition vote dropped at every election since Tony Abbott's landslide in 2013, as the Liberals moved further to the left. One of the metaphors of this collapse is the former Treasurer Frydenberg. In 2016, his primary vote, not two-party preferred, his primary vote, 58.22%. In 2019, it crashed to 49.41. And then, embracing the Morrison philosophy and policies, on May 21, it was 42 0.98% in two elections, a drop of 16%. Now, the lessons are simple, but there are people in the Liberal Party who don't want to learn the lessons. Since Tony Abbott returned the Conservative parties to power in 2013, the coalition has lost 650,000 votes, but there were 3 million more people registered to vote in 2022 than there were in 2013. Do you think all this has something to do with the constant harbouring by the Liberal Party of left-wingers like Turnbull and Keane? Do you think it's got something to do with the coalition after repeatedly telling us they're better economic managers than Labor, spending like drunken sailors and plunging us into unimaginable debt? I spoke to Mark Latham last night, witnessed the recent New South Wales budget, a $27 billion spending spree, an annual expenditure growth, growth of 26.5%, net debt, 115 billion. It's a liberal, keen-inspired fiscal carnage. As for economic managers, in a New South Wales budget of 95 billion, the savings are 32 million, million, not billion. Barely a tick above the 25 million for a flag on the bridge. 
It is historically correct to say that there is no precedent in Australian politics for this level of liberal extravagance. An increase in government spending in New South Wales under a liberal government for this financial year of 26.5%. Now, Gough Whitlam was excoriated in 1974. It was a joke in the boardrooms of the nation that the Whitlam government knew nothing about managing the economy. It was a joke that they'd increased government spending in one year by 24.7%, 24.7, a record people thought would never be broken. Yet here is a Liberal government in New South Wales breaking the record. Slothful policy, policy-making expenditure increasing in one financial year by 26.5%. But Matt Keane's everywhere. He's the Liberal showpiece. He's the greatest. Well, he is in one sense, the greatest spender, the greatest public debt accumulator, and the greatest waste of taxpayers' money in New South Wales history. And the Liberal Party are wondering what they have to do to win an election. It's pretty simple. You only have to see the New South Wales budget to know why, when the New South Wales election is due next March, the voters won't want the Perrottet-Keen abandonment of simple Liberal values. The Liberal Party believed once in small government and lower taxes and creating incentives for people to do well. But here's the only Liberal government on mainland Australia increasing expenditure in one year in its recent budget by 26.5%, hopelessly inflationary. There is no determination, it seems, to achieve cost savings or efficiency on behalf of hard-working taxpayers. And the taxpayers don't like it. Keane's going to save the planet. So he provides $10 billion of taxpayers' money on so-called green energy programs to reduce global surface temperatures by 0.00055 degrees over a century. Well, months and months before the federal election, I warned that Prime Minister Morrison was in nightmare territory from which he would not recover. He was no longer a Liberal Prime Minister. That is true in New South Wales, of the only Liberal government on mainland Australia. The trouble is, they know everything, and they won't listen to those who may be able to get them out of trouble. The story is simple. There are hundreds of thousands of liberal thinking voters out there who can't find a Liberal Party. Okay, before we go, look, I think much of this criticism about Anthony Albanese being overseas constantly is pretty low rent. Are you meaning to tell me that a new leader who must navigate his country through one of the most uncertain geopolitical times we've seen should not show his face at some of these important international meetings and events after nine years of a different government. If you think that, I think you're not being realistic. Of course, Australia should be represented in such forums and become familiar with other world leaders. Sure, there are critical issues at home. I agree with that. Indeed, we highlight them here every night. The economy, for starters, is a huge pressure cooker right now. I still don't see or hear much from the new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, nor from the finance minister, Katie Gallagher, who, by the way, has zero economic credentials, describing herself in her biography as a social worker. She's the finance minister. That in itself is a worry. Then there's the nationwide worker shortage faced by all businesses, no matter their shape or size, plus the unions demanding pay rises to deal with Australia's runaway inflation, runaway inflation, interest rates have gone up again today. All this a result of poor monetary policy by the Reserve Bank. There are other price pressures. We've got to remember the Prime Minister and his foreign minister while overseas have been, it appears, meeting with Chinese authorities to end the unjustified trade sanctions on Australian goods. 
and Mr Albanese met with Australian troops serving in the Middle East. Now, all these are good initiatives, which we'd expect from our national leader. But where Anthony Albanese comes unstuck with his constant travelling in his first two or so months of being elected leader is this. I thought Labor wanted to legislate their emissions reduction target. We've not stopped hearing from the climate change and energy minister, Chris Bowen. Every second day, he's lecturing the public about renewable energy, phasing out coal, greenhouse gases. He uses all the lingo. Yet here is his leader, Albanese, and the foreign minister, Penny Wong. And we've heard that Claire O'Neill has been in Sri Lanka, Tanya Plibersek in Madrid, Pat Conroy and Richard Miles in Rwanda, and then Singapore. Half the front bench are jetting around the world. But I thought, well, all this talk about emissions reduction, that they'd be against all this air travel. If Labor is so worried about climate change and their carbon footprint, why wouldn't they Zoom call into these international conferences? As The Spectator recently published, and I quote, 43,000 kilometres plus in a private jet isn't screaming, I'm terrified the world's going to end in a carbon fueled apocalypse. None of the world's leaders behave as if they truly believe in climate change or the rising waters of the global warming tide. Their harbourside mansions and private islands should be enough to bell the cat that something's amiss. If this isn't an apocalypse, and if climate change isn't important enough for the Prime Minister to trim down on his flight log, then why does it justify communism by proxy with Labor legislating of big state interference in every aspect of the Australian economy?" Unquote. How true is that? Too clever. But sadly, it's too right. You see, our leaders love to talk, but they're never prepared to walk the walk. Further proof that this climate change agenda is all about wealth transfer and people cashing in on the so-called green transition. If Labor were truly spooked by climate change, they'd cut the air miles and stay at home. What do you reckon? That's it from me tonight, by the way. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.